Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. with me today is a fellow fan from Warren, Ohio, of Jeff Coast. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. I'm very excited to be here on the show. All right. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? Well, it would actually have to start with two things. It have to be the Edmund Fitzgerald and my father. When I was about 11 years old, my parents took me to the Great Lakes Maritime Museum up in Vermilion, Ohio, which is right on the shore of Lake Erie. And while we were at the um, museum, we came across a life preserver they had uh, salvaged from the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald during the initial search for survivors. And um, it was really cool to see it. And my dad tells me, did you know there was a song written about that ship? I said, oh, really? Well, that's cool. So a few weeks later, we're home and I asked him, I say, hey, dad, can you play me that shipwreck song? He goes, all right. He takes me into... Um, our basement where our, our turntable is, and he goes through all his vinyl records. He has a huge collection of records, and he pulls out this white album called Summertime Dream by this guy called Gordon Lightfoot. I didn't know who that was. He puts the, the, the album on the, um, the turntable, drops the needle, and on comes this haunting song about this shipwreck. And from the very minute of the music and the words, I'm captivated. I'm just hooked. I love stories. I love songs that tell stories and like reading stories, and I also like to write my own stories for fun, especially when I, when I was a kid. And the funny thing was, you know, when I listened to this song, I'm captivated by it. And for the whole six and a half minutes, I'm just like, this is a great song. I just asked my dad, can you play it again? So he plays it again. And then as time goes on, uh, by the uh, end of that year, Christmas time came around. I said, dad, you know, I'd love to have a CD of this song because, you know, we didn't have any Gordon Lightfoot CDs at the time. So for Christmas, I get Gord's Gold Volume 2, which was re originally released in 1988. Play the Evan Fitzgerald to death on that. I listened to some other songs. I liked them. And then for my birthday in February, uh, a few months later, we bought the complete greatest hits. Started listening to other tracks on that. And then it, it just spiraled into borrowing the songbook compilation from my library in my hometown. Borrowed almost every couple of weeks until the point I got sad about having to return it. So when I got my first summer job, I just uh, started spending my grass mowing money on Gordon Lightfoot CDs from Borders Bookstore. I would start ordering them and then I just started growing these albums and I loved his music. It just there's something about the music and the words and his singing. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. It's like, I love the way this guy does music. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a perfect way to get started um, with his stuff. And you indicated that you liked the idea of story songs and Edmund Fitzgerald is just the, the epitome of that. You also said that you really enjoy just the way that all of it comes together with Lightfoot. Is that a good way of encapsulating what you like about Lightfoot's music? Yeah, um, I remember when he did his interview with CBS Sunday Morning about eight years ago, and they started off the segment by saying, fair warning, Gordon Lightfoot's music can get stuck in your head. And 
I like his well-crafted melodies. I like the way he does romantic songs, his, his storytelling songs. The way the man plays the guitar is just, it's an inspiration to me. In fact, listening to his music is what got me to pick up the guitar in the first place. A lot of my guitar chords I learned by playing like the songs, teaching myself how to sing, by singing a lot of his stuff. He's a really great artist. I just feel like, you know, even modern music today lacks a lot of the openness. The fact that we really got me really liked about his writing was the fact that he could write, I guess you could call it almost confessional songwriting. The fact you could really put your feelings down to paper and even do it in ways that are some like hidden meanings here or there, or just being right on direct with that. It appealed to me so much as a young kid and even now as a young adult. What he does as an artist is just, it's almost hard to even describe it, but it's just like, wow, you know, this guy, he's a talented, phenomenal artist. I think more people should be listening to him. In fact, I think it's a shame that most people nowadays don't know who Gordon Lightfoot is, especially among my age group. Well, it's lucky that I get to teach high school kids because I get to turn them on to this great artist. And you and I have a lot in common because it was Lightfoot and Jim Croce and CSN that it prompted me to pick up a guitar in the first place also. The way he plays, it's just so, it's band leader-like, and that makes perfect sense because, of course, he was, you know, he learned how to work in an orchestra. That's what he went to that music school for. Have you seen Lightfoot live in concert? Yes, I've seen him three times, actually. They were all small venues, too, which was, I think, again, I know you guys talked about this on the show a lot. Small venues for Lightfoot are really good settings. First time I saw him was in 2008 in West Virginia, uh, down in the, at the Mountaineer Casino, a venue they had there called The Harve. And my dad and I went there on a very last minute. We only left here in Ohio, where I live, to go down there about maybe three hours before the concert. We drove in a hurry to get there, and we got there just in time to grab a couple of tickets, and we saw the show. And it was a great show. I believe he may have opened with Sia Tranquility that night, which is one of my favorite songs. And it was also good to see Terry Clemens with him because uh, he passed away just a few years after that. And it was, I was happy to see that Lightfoot lineup at that time. I saw him again in 2015 at, in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Warner Theater. Great show. A lot of great songs were played at that. I remember he did Drink Your Glasses Empty for all the veterans in the audience, which a lot, he got a lot of applause for that. And it was, I thought it was great for him to do that. And then I, the last time I saw him, was in 2016. He actually came to my hometown to perform. And this is the only time he's ever done that. Came to a venue that was like not even 10 minutes from my home. So I definitely, as soon as tickets were announced, I bought those. And my dad went with me both times, all three times to see him. And the last time was my most favorite because I actually got to meet Gordon that night. We waited outside the venue for him and I got to meet his band, Barry Keen, Mike Heffernan, Carl Lancaster. They're all friendly guys. They were all very just genuine nice guys. And then Gordon comes out and, you know, it's kind of funny when you have a hero, a musical hero, and you always dream about what it's like if you ever to meet them. And then you meet them in person, you can't think of anything to say. So I handed him a poster that I got from the, well, the last posters they had from the venue. He signed it for me. Um, I even shook his hand. The funny part was I kept trying to think of something to say that would make me sound stupid. And my dad starts talking to him about ships because my uncle is currently living up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, building okay. ships for the Canadian Navy. And that got Gordon's interest so quick. Mm-hmm. And they talked for about a good five minutes about that. I'm just, and here's me just standing there like, <laughs> I'm just like, well, geez, I wish I wish I had the guts of my dad just to, to talk to him. But he was just so nice. And the fact that I even stuck my hand out and he shook it, didn't think he was going to do that. What I like about Lifewood is he's really himself. He's a genuine guy, because, you know, some artists can be a little moody with fans, but, you know, he was just the nicest guy he could be, and it's a great memory for me, and I, I had wanted to see him again. He almost came to Ohio a couple times recently, but he broke his wrist, uh, that postponed one concert, and then before then, 
the pandemic hit and he canceled it. So he hasn't come back since, but hopefully I, if I'm lucky, I might try to see him one more time if he comes around here again. Well, today we're talking about The Circle is Small, which was originally recorded on the Back Here on Earth album, but is better known for Endless Wire. That was the re-recorded version that was released in 1978. Lightfoot likes that version better. It did sell a lot better. So that's the one we're going to be talking about. I think for me, the reason I like that song in particular is that it's a slightly more rockin' tune than he has done in the past. It's not pure folk. I mean, if it was, I would certainly have no problem with that because I'm a folky at heart. But <laughs> it's a nice shift away from that. He's not trying to be something completely inauthentic. And he has a really good vocal delivery. I mean, he's got that pop sensibility and it really works well. So why do you like this song and why did you want to talk about it today? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, I like it first off, for one, the honest lyrics. It's a heavily relatable song even though I'm, I personally have not been through the situations talking about, but it's yeah. easy to relate. Yeah. I love the lyrics, the melody. The, and I was just thinking about this earlier this morning before we talked. And I love how the melody in the key he chose is a, almost a melancholy melody. The lyrics and the music fit perfectly. You know, the mood is set the minute the song begins. You just feel it. I always love the chorus when he starts singing the chorus. And, I, and, I, and you can hear the, the, the melody begins to go down and then go up and i just love that flow especially playing it on the guitar it's it's fun to play that on the guitar because you just it just it's it's kind of strange you can almost almost feel every chord as you're playing or even listening to it i love that and secondly the connection i have with it personally is one of my dad's favorite songs it always has been in fact on the greatest hit cd his favorite songs on that were daylight katie beautiful and this one he was one introduced me to this one in the first place it's one of the earliest lightfoot songs that i heard this this something very catchy about this. And as I got older and you know interested in girls and started dating and all that, and then the breakups that come, and then parts of this song start becoming relatable. But I just like it for the song for that it's relatable to anybody. You don't necessarily have to be in the situation like what's in to understand him. And I think that's why his songs are so likable, is that you don't necessarily have to live it to understand it. Well, it is kind of one of those situations there, but for the grace of God, go I in mm -hmm. whatever relationship I'm in. And I haven't had that experience either. And uh, God willing, I never will. But the fact that there's a certain relatability to not know 100% what the other person is doing or what they're up to. And mm -hmm. Lightfoot experienced that with at least one of his partners and maybe more. We'll talk about that as we go through. What to you is the best setting to listen to the song? Is it going to be day, night? Is it going to be at home? Is it going to be outside? Going to be inside? It's interesting, actually. Um, this song often comes on my Spotify playlist when I'm driving in either day or night. But if I'm at home listening to a song, it always seems to be at night in the evening. Hmm. Um, it just, just kind of pops up on the playlist. It's always mostly in the evening. So that would be a good setting, I feel. See, for me, it was very different. The very first time I heard this song, I was in Eugene, Oregon, and I was there working on a church conference. And it was a cloudy day, and maybe it was even misting rain. And I was in an apartment that was maybe on the third or the fourth floor. And I opened the curtains, okay, and I could see kind of the skyline of Eugene, which is basically a very large college town. And the lyrics, the city where we live may be quite large, but the circle is small. And that's the only impression I have. I can't relate to it on a, a visceral level, but that to me would be middle of the day, 
maybe late winter or late fall, okay, on that kind of kind of a cloudy day where you're looking out over, you know, the city where we live may be quite large. We'll be right back to our conversation with Jeff Coast about The Circle is Small, but first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Stepping away from folk music for a second, I wanted to tell you about Newsly. It's an audio app for iOS and Android that picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the web has become listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing the narration right away. And they have podcasts as well, trending podcasts from over 40 countries, including, of course, Carefree Highway Revisited. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the show notes and use promo code CHR2022 to receive a one-month free premium subscription. That's www.newsly.me. Jeff, do you have an angle about how the song got written or what led Gordon to actually sit down and write it? Yes, I got this both from the 2017 documentary, which is a wonderful documentary, and uh, in the book as well that Nicholas Jennings wrote. I believe that he wrote this song on his songwriting trip he took to England in 68. And uh, I know he wrote Bitter Green on that uh, trip as well. And I, I believe that's where he wrote this song as well. I think he wrote it on that songwriting trip. I know he wrote Trains and stuff to, just to kind of get the juices flowing. And I think the song may have come out of that session. I know that what he told Nicholas Jennings in his book that the song was about his relationship with his first wife, Britta, the trouble their marriage was heading in at, at that time, and um, about the infidelity and stuff like that. Also in the documentary, it's kind of interesting how he talked about the fact that they were in the midst of getting ready to split up at that time. And he wrote it from a point of view that he said could have been hers, but it also was his. Well, yeah, it's Interesting to me because Lightfoot has admitted in the documentary and other places that he's hurt a lot of women along his path in life, including girlfriends and former wives, because he was unfaithful. So I think there's an irony to that. He, in this, he's the one being wronged, but in life, it is he who's been doing the wronging. Mm -hmm. It's he who has strayed. There's a great quotation that he gave, although it's a little nebulous. He said, this is another tune about life in the fast lane and unrequited love. It was written early in my career, and we re-recorded it because we thought we could do it better. I like this version better than the original. And I have to say, I like this version better than the original also. And it was about his first wife, Britta. I always thought it was about Kathy Smith, with whom he had a very public and very turbulent relationship. And it's not about her at all. I think that too, because especially you talk about the two different versions, I like both actually. I liked the, although I started on this one from Endless Wire, which is again, the superior version in many ways. I like the acoustic version from 68 too. For one thing, I, I like his vocals on the, on the original recording too as well. For some reason, I don't know what it is about Red Shea's guitar playing on the original and Lightfoot's 12 string and all that. It's just kind of like a nice little blend. But the fact you mentioned Kathy Smith, you could almost say that if you're, if you're looking, comparing the two versions, it's like, the original definitely written for Britta, but if you look at the uh, re-recorded version, he could have been thinking about Kathy Smith at that time. So it's like the song stayed the same, but the point of view to who he's, to who he's referring to shifted. And that's an interesting point. 
And it says a little bit about the timelessness of his music, doesn't it? Um, oh, that it can adapt to more than one situation. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about the Endless Wire album a little later on. Let's talk about the lyrics here. It's all right for some, but not all right for me when the one that I'm loving slips around. This is clearly not a guy who can tolerate an open relationship when she is the one who's messing around on him. But apparently when he's the one who's messing around, it's okay. Now, he hadn't really come out and said that in 1978, but we know now that that was the case. It's an interesting double standard. Yeah. And Nicholas Jennings' book, too, going back to that, that he talked about how he demanded loyalty from those in his closest circle. And I'm sure that I'm sure that applied to relationships as well, um, romantic ones. So I can see where he would come from that point of view. It does seem like a double standard. You're right. And of course, if you look at him now, when he talks about it, you can tell that he's definitely felt maybe he was a bit unfair in that. It's good to see, you know, how Lightfoot has shifted perspective over the years and time definitely does have that effect on us. Yeah. And he, I think, has mellowed in a lot of ways. And I think that is a function of time. And it's also the function of the fact that he now has perspective on things, whereas when he was at the top of his game and was making hits and jetting around the world and things like that, as anyone who has been in that situation will tell you, it can crack your brains. And I think that is something that happened to him because he wasn't always as genuine and as gracious as you described him. Mm. Um, You know, you haven't encountered him like that. And, you know, thank God for that. You think it's fine to do things I cannot see. Well, clearly he can't see what she is doing because that's the nature of stepping out on somebody. Oh, yeah. You're trying to keep it under wraps and you're doing it to me. Baby, can't you see that I know how it is? And I love the kind of crescendo that they have leading into the chorus. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a wonderful build. You can almost say in the beginning, it's a bit of an angry and sorrowful and then it kind of crescendos up to where you see where the the pain he's experiencing right into the chorus and that's just a brilliant piece of arrangement writing right there yeah and i think lightfoot did his own arrangements for this so that would make sense i can see it in your eyes and feel it in the way you kiss my lips and i think about maybe when they're talking her eyes are going off someplace she doesn't want to make eye contact with him which is one of the tells you know you have when people are lying When he's like, hey, where you been? What have you been doing? And she doesn't want to come clean about it. When they're kissing, yeah, they're still kissing, but the kisses are perfunctory. They're not passionate. They're not, oh my gosh, I love you so much. And I just want to show you, you know, it's just kind of, okay, you know, and you're done. So, you know, I can feel his insecurity in that. I can hear it in your voice whenever we are talking like this. Jeff, have you ever talked to someone who's been seeming distant or they're seeming evasive and what feeling that brings up for you? Yeah, I have. There's a girl I liked a lot. We were very close. We dated for like a really brief time, but then she developed an interest in another guy. And when she started getting serious with this other guy, our relationship kind of almost shut down in very many ways. You know, she didn't talk to me like she used to. It was very surfacey, very, I'd almost say cordial. Because we, we were actually working together in a band, believe it or not. She was singing with me in, in a band. We never really dated or anything, but you know, I wanted to have that relationship with her. But we, we did have a, some, somewhat of a closeness, and then it didn't happen when she started seeing somebody else. When someone else comes in the picture, you, you notice a definite change in the, in the person, especially when their interest is no longer in you. Things become distance, very short, very cordial, almost like awkward. 
Well, yeah, and certainly stilted. You know, it's certainly mm-hmm. not the way it was. And if you're honest with yourself, then you realize, okay, things need to be reconciled. I mean, they need to be fixed or they need to end. I can see what you believe in when his name is mentioned and I die. And there's a double entendre here. When his name is mentioned, it immediately attracts her attention. Maybe her face lights up a little bit. You know, how's Joe? And you just see, you know, there's a spark there. Her attention and maybe her heart is leaping up in her chest. Of course, she can't see that. Or she's acting really paranoid. What about him? Why, why are you mentioning this? You know, who, who have you been talking to? And then the idea of, and I die. And I have always wondered, when I first heard this, I'm thinking, he didn't really say that, did he? Well, it turns out he did. And I'm wondering, is she alluding to the idea that when he, Gordon, dies, she's going to immediately run into the arms or another person? Or is that just a reference to I'm dying inside when I see this is happening with us? What do you think he meant by that little turn of phrase? I definitely think he's referring to that when he sees her talking about the other guy look or thinking about the other guy, it kills him internally. Interesting point, because I remember in the original version, the original line was, I can see the way you look. And I almost wish he hadn't changed it because that line almost gets, it's, it's almost like a gut punching line. But when he says, when I see the way you look, it's like, oh, I can feel that. And you kind of start thinking back, you're like, well, yeah, it would hurt me deeply to see someone I love. And I, you know, especially if you're married to this person yeah. and you love them, you, you build a life with them. And then to see them a way that they used to look about you when they talked about you to other people, even to you. And now they have that look about someone else, you know, oh, no, this is in trouble. I've lost them. This is killing me. In fact, one of the reasons why my dad loved this song so much was because he literally lived this song at one point in his life when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And he tells me all the time, he goes, life would got this right. He goes, every line in this song is true because I lived it. You know, Joan Baez said something very profound. She was asked in a 60 Minutes interview a few years ago, don't you ever get lonely? Because she hadn't had anybody in her life for a while. And she said, yeah, but you know the feeling you get when you're with someone and it's not working out? That feeling is a lot worse. And mm-hmm. I think she's, she's right. And, uh, you know, Lightfoot has lived this and it sounds like your dad has too. We'll be right back to our conversation with Jeff Coast about The Circle is Small. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. I can watch the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you close your eyes. That kind of sums up everything he's already said in the chorus, but I think he needed to round it out, you know, somehow. So I don't see anything particularly deep in that particular line. It's just poetic license just to get out of the chorus. It's all right for some, but not all right to be where the one that I'm loving can't be found. Well, Lightfoot is saying that he doesn't like being alone at home waiting for his partner to come back, even though A couple of his best songs have been written when he's alone at home. I think about Early Morning Rain. Okay, granted, his son was there, but Britta was not there. And Sundown was when Kathy Smith was out doing goodness knows what. Okay, and he's sitting at home, probably getting very angry and waiting for her to come home. 
So it's kind of interesting. He hates it, but it's made him rich and it's made him famous. And they were incredible songs that he wrote under those circumstances. Had that been something you'd given any thought to? Yeah, it's, it's true. Like, you know, when you mention that, because he hates the fact that he's sitting alone because, and again, this, this brings me to sundown because he was worried about what Kathy Smith was doing while he was out writing songs. But he also said he needed to get away to write songs because while it damaged his relationships, it was like a double-edged sword. He knew he had to do it, but there's costs on both ends if he didn't. Very much does seem that way because I think it's like, well, I'd like to have you with me, but at the same time, I need this alone time to write, especially when you're trying to write songs. You need all the space you can get just to get your thoughts out and get it to flow. It almost seems like a double standard on this line too, kind of like how we talked about back in the first verse too. I think he has enough respect for his art that he does need to go away and do that. And I think the women in his life have, for the most part, been understanding of that, but there have been other things that have gotten in the way. Okay, and alcohol being one of those. And that's a, a whole other podcast series. Mm-hmm. The city where we live might be quite large. And I think of Toronto, but it really could be any city. My guess is that he was talking about Toronto because he certainly wasn't talking about Aurelia, which is not a quite large city by any stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. And of course, I heard it in Eugene. I don't know exactly how many people live in Eugene anymore, but it's certainly bigger than Aurelia. But the circle is small. Why not tell us all? And then all of us will know. And he might be referring to a social circle, like all of their mutual friends. Okay. And many of them have kind of figured this out. Okay. Because they see the same kind of signs, or maybe they've been complicit in this. They've been saying, okay, well, we're going to get her away from him so that she can go be with Mr. X. But then I also detect some real sarcasm here. You know, the idea is that this is the worst kept secret in the world. Everybody knows this. Why don't you just tell everyone so that everyone will know it from your own lips? Did you detect the sarcasm there, too? Oh, absolutely. Um, That whole verse, you know, he's definitely like saying, "Okay, you think you're hiding this from me, but clearly you're a bad liar. I can see it physically. I can see it by the way you talk. And and the fact that the city where we live is large, and it, must, it definitely is referring to Toronto. In fact, in um, the documentary, that they showed a skyline of Toronto and the apartment he had lived in. And when you mentioned about pulling the curtains back and seeing that city, I think that's the same visual he got as well. And he also called this the, the apartment dweller song, too. So the fact that the, that the circle being small is basically, okay, well, there's a lot of people in this city, but who you're with is definitely somebody we probably both know and our friends know. So why would you insult me by not being honest with me, the fact that you're being unfaithful is hurtful, but you hurt me even worse by not even having the common courtesy just to be honest with me. And I think the sarcasm there, he's basically just saying, okay, I've had enough of the lies, the deceit, the, I can see through everything. Our friends can see it. Just come out and be honest and clean for once so we can just get on with it. Yeah. Whatever it is at that particular point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With the documentary and what I found out later was a little incongruous because I knew that he was living in that apartment when he was with Kathy Smith. But we also know that the song is not about Kathy Smith, at least in its original incarnation. So maybe he was living in an apartment with Britta. I really don't know. But that, you know, I can understand why the connection would come up there. Then he repeats the chorus and then It's all right to leave, but not all right to lie when you come home and you can't say where you've been. 
And he's almost saying here, it would be better that you just get out, you know, that you make a clean break of things, that you just hit the road and that we call it quits rather than trying to have it both ways. You know, rather than stay with me and lie, it would be all right if you leave. And he does that in this really subtle way. I mean, he does that in four or five words, whereas he could spend a whole verse talking about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. Because he's basically saying, okay, it's all right. You want to leave me, go ahead, but don't lie to me just because you come back. You can't tell me where you've been and you still think that I can't physically see you doing it. But I know you're doing it and you're killing me as well. So can't you see that I know how it is? So let's just get it over with. You want to leave, leave. I think it's best for us both that you do leave because what could be left in this relationship to save at this point? Yeah, or stay and knock it off, but don't have it both ways, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. and then he ends the song, you know, with a repeated chorus and it fades out. So we talked about the fact that it appeared on Back Here on Earth, which was his fourth album. And the more popular version is on Endless Wire in 1978. A lot of people considered that album to be the beginning of the end for Lightfoot's real superstardom. The reviews that I read said something like, okay, they shouldn't have called this Endless Wire. They should have called it Endless Touring Makes Me Exhausted or something, because that was the feel that a lot of critics got from it at that particular time. We're going to focus on the 78 version here. So what to you is the, your favorite musical aspect of that song? Just the instrumentation of the vocals. Two things that I stay on on this version, because I love his 12 string, but it's more subtle. It's more pulled back in this version. I love a combination of three things. I love Terry Clemens' lead guitar, that pedal steel that goes right along with, which adds even a more sorrowful, mournful sound to it. And then, of course, the string arrangement in the back, which which crescendos definitely towards the end on the on the last chorus. Those are the three things I love the most about that. Those three things I think definitely added a depth to that song that it needed. And it's I think it's fantastic with those three. It's out the most to me. Oh, and also Rick Haynes' little bass licks here and there, which I can even hear in my head as we speak. Those are also nice little touches in there too. And I think it's an electric piano or even acoustic one. I'm not sure by Doug Riley on there, but it's also again. Very well done, all those instrumentations. I love the most in this song. Yeah, the piano and the steel guitar really, to me, are the things that make this. I almost don't think that you need Lightfoot's guitar in this song. Almost you don't need it because it's buried way down in the mix after about the first five or six bars. And it's really piano based, and then the strings come in. A little later on, but the steel guitar and the piano, there's a kind of urbane feel to this. And it's a very rare thing when you have a song that can transcend all sorts of genres. But this is one of those. And the fact that it didn't neatly fit into one category may be one of the reasons that it wasn't as much of a blockbuster as some of his other songs had been. And that's a good place for us to talk about personnel who played in this. Okay, Lightfoot, of course, played a 6 and 12 string. He played high string and played electric guitar, which may be the first time he was ever credited with playing electric guitar. It may have been earlier, but I don't remember. Terry Clements, Rick Haynes, of course. Red Shea actually played on the album, although I don't know if he played on this track. He was still around, or maybe he was just sort of spotlighting at that point. Now, another bassist called Tom... Shezniak, I think is his name, Pee Wee Charles on the steel guitar, Barry Keane playing drums and percussion, and then Doug Riley 
did a fantastic job with the orchestration. And he's right up there with Nick DeCaro to me in terms of the orchestrators. You know, Oh, absolutely. We'll be right back to our conversation with Jeff Coast about The Circle is Small. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hey, do you like classic albums? Technically, like, the, you know, the 20th century albums, um, such as, like, Beatles, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Rolling Stones. I've only had Beatle episodes so far, however, I'll be doing more. But welcome to my show, or rather, hey, welcome to check out my show. <laughs> um, all those years ago, a classic album podcast with the dipping sauce. Um, as you can see, the George Harrison reference. Um, I review classic albums, um, not of those the likes of Beethoven, the likes of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, or what have you. <laughs> um, so yeah, check it out. It's every Monday. Um, I do albums, conspiracies, songs, all that jazz. So just check it out. All those years ago, a classic album podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Now, the thing that blew my mind, Jeff, is that Lightfoot has apparently almost never played this song in concert, hardly at all, ever. I mean, I only counted three times that I could find. He played it a year before Endless Wire came out, or the year before. He played it once during the tour that was supporting Endless Wire, and then he left it completely alone for almost 30 years. The last time he played it was in Boston in December of 2017. So I guess I'm curious, why do you think he left this alone? He only knows the answer, but I'm wondering if you have a hypothesis about that. I do wonder. I actually, um, and it's sad that he didn't perform it more because I've heard the Avery Fisher Hall from 1977 on um, that's the most circulated bootleg that's out there because it's the best sounding one. And I've heard it. It's a wonderful live track. It definitely translated well live. So I know some of the songs he didn't do live because they don't translate well because it's a studio accoutrements and stuff like that. Because it was a minor hit. I'm surprised he didn't play it more. I don't know. It's because maybe the song took him to a place where, you know, in his life where he didn't want to think about some of the mistakes that were made, or he maybe he wanted to finally move on altogether and let it go. Maybe that's why he stopped playing it after 1978. I was surprised to see that he played it in 2017. I wish I would have heard it, and too bad nobody in the audience filmed it. I would like to have heard it, how it sounded in, now. I'm guessing, I think maybe he stopped playing because maybe it's not one of his personal favorites. Maybe he doesn't like it as much as some of the others. Although I remember my father telling me when he saw Lightfoot in the mid-70s as well as into the early 80s, people actually had yelled out that song in request. He said that was one of the most requested songs. I don't remember if he said he played it when he saw him, but he did know that a lot of people did ask about the circle was small. And I know Lightfoot was never one to really do requests anyway. Right. But I think, again, that perhaps he let it rest for a while because maybe he didn't want to go back to the thoughts he had. Maybe because sometimes when you're playing a song, it can bring up thoughts to you while you're performing it. And maybe he didn't want to think about those things anymore. Yeah, there are some songs that meant a great deal to me when I was younger, and now I don't play them either because they're painful or because it's just hackneyed. You know, I'm just thinking I'm not going to have the same approach to that, whether they were my own songs or, you know, songs that other people had written. But I also think that this is a song that could have lent, I mean, even if he didn't have strings or have an orchestra with him, he could have done this a lot more in his sets. And I think people would have paid to hear it. 
he had probably very personal reasons and it is an older song of his and he doesn't like listening to his earlier work the fact that he re-recorded it makes me think well come on i mean you revisited enough to you know make another record out of it so why aren't you gonna play but he has his own reasons for that you talked about it being a minor hit back here on earth the version was not released as a single the album went to 21 on the canadian rpm charts i don't think it made a dent in the states but the one from endless wire peaked at number three on the adult contemporary chart 33 on the pop chart 92 on the country chart and number one on the canadian adult contemporary chart well that's three different categories and you could almost make a case that that would be a good dance record too and then in canada the album went to number two in canada 56 in australia 22 in the u.s pop chart and number 14 in the u.s country chart so this is where he really was at the peak of his influence if not the peak of the quality of the songs although they're excellent but i mean he was influential all over the charts and it's kind of interesting to me that he would walk away from that that's why i asked the question about it is that consistent with the information you have about how successful it was or well, yeah actually in fact i saw that and i know i know i know his canadian numbers were always higher than they were in the states i didn't know that it actually hit number three on the adult contemporary charts i know it always peaked at 33 and i know what he had been because he had a hot streak of hits from sundown up till the record of Fitzgerald, where they're all, you know, top 10 hits there. I think the song did deserve a higher hit than it did, but I'm surprised that, yeah, because I know the song did get a lot of airplay because just for the fun of it, I actually did check out the Casey Case and American Top 40 stuff just to see if Lightfoot stuff was in it. And they cut out the songs for copyright reasons, but he, and he did play that song on the top 40 and 78 on more than one occasion. So I am surprised that, because I know that he didn't play it more, but, the fact that it did chart higher was that's that's pretty cool. That's one thing I didn't know because I've always read my research. It always talks about the number thirty three chart, and there it talks about the other ones, which you know, I'm gonna have to go back now and look at some of the other ones too. But um, yeah, the fact that it did, it did chart higher, you think you want to promote it even more because obviously it was a single from the album. Well, yeah, and it's possible that he just felt he couldn't recreate everything with the kind of expenses it would take to haul a band like that around. And yeah, it's the fact that, okay, it's not a rock song, so it didn't make it higher on the pop charts. And adult contemporary may have been sort of downplayed a little bit. I'll bet you, though, that when they do Casey Kasem countdowns on Sirius XM, that if we could find the recording of that, that was actually played on Sirius XM, they'll probably play that song because they play everybody else's. Now, it's been re-recorded by seven different artists that I could find, only one of whom, honestly, I had ever heard of, and that was Jimmy Buffett. And I'm sure he did a fantastic job with it. But the other ones, Dale Ann Bradley, J.P. Cormier, The Lonesome River Band, Herman Van Veen, Robin Wakefield, and Strippers Union. So had you heard of or had you heard any of those cover versions, Jeff? I have heard Jimmy Buffett's actually, um, I saw when he put out his Buried Treasure CD, I just picked it up for a minute and I saw two tracks that stood out, The Gypsy and The Circle of Small. I said, okay, I have to listen to his versions because these were demos of Jimmy Buffett before he was ever an established artist. I thought Jimmy Buffett did do a nice version of this song. I know he's a Lightfoot fan. He loves, in fact, I think he said Come Monday was a direct inspiring of a Lightfoot song anyway, that if he was trying to write a Lightfoot song, that was the one. The fact that I think Jimmy Buffett 
I think the ones I've heard did it best. I've heard one by a bluegrass band called G Runs and Roses. I think that's their name. It's a bluegrass. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's just, it's a, it's a bluegrass version. It lacked a lot of the punch. I think that Lightfoot's and I, I would say not necessarily the punch, but the more soulful, the more direct. It, it, it seemed to have lost some of its impact in a bluegrass take. Then there was a version I just come across the other night, totally by accident. I don't remember the name. I wish I could remember the name, but they were a band that recorded a version of it in 69. Very, it's very reminiscent of the original recording with a echoing backing vocal. But in the list that we checked, uh, Gene Buffett was the only one that I have heard. And um, I think he did. I would agree. I think he did do all right with this one. Yeah. And I think he would be one of those that I would love to have somebody i mean jimmy buffett is not really contemporary music right now but he is still around and he's still touring but other than jimmy buffett is there anybody that you would like to hear record this song that is currently active in the music world oh that's a good one i think one who could possibly pull it off might be ed sheeran just based on some of the writings that he's done of course if he were to do it he'd have to do it and i think in a similar style of lightfoot that's who I could see do because I know some of his writing uh, in terms of lyricism in some ways I could I could almost feel almost a Lightfoot-esque almost just a little in lyricism speak I think he could probably pull it off if I were to take someone current although it's very hard to top the original in, in in so many ways I hadn't thought I'm gonna have to think about that whether you know Ed Sheeran could carry it off but he probably has the same voice quality and the same you know timbre to the music Anne Murray has done other of Gordon's songs, and I think she could probably do a decent job with this. And then I would have loved to have heard Kenny Rogers do it. Um, and I know that Lightfoot was a great admirer of Kenny Rogers and actually gave him some music at one point. And Rogers said, no, I can't. You know, these are yours. You go ahead and do them. I don't think this is one of them, but I think I would like to have heard Kenny do that one. Okay, as we're sort of wrapping up here, Jeff, let's say that you have dibs on Lightfoot's set and you get to choose the first song he's going to pick at his next concert. You have front row tickets. What would be the song you would want him to open the show with? Honestly, it would have to be Race Among the Ruins because I've, that's a song I've always wanted to hear him perform live and have always missed out when I see him. He, he would never do it on the shows I saw, but then a couple of shows later it would pop up in the set. I love that song a lot for the melody and I don't understand the lyrics as much, but I would love to hear him open with that song. Cause I know that used to be one of his openers in, um, in the seventies and sometimes in the eighties as well. That one would be definitely the number one. I want, I definitely would want to hear first. Yeah. And it, it is a difficult choice, but I think the, you know, he would probably oblige you if he was one to do requests like that. So Jeff, where can people find you online? You can find me on my YouTube channel. It's the telecoaster 94 music channel. That's all one word. I post a lot of Lightfoot covers on there. I'm active as much as I can be with time permitting. I post a lot, a lot of covers. I have done occasionally a guitar tutorial for people to ask. You can also find me on Instagram too, under the same name, Telecoaster94Music, where I share little snippets of my covers with, with a link to my YouTube page right in my bio. So you can find me there. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. This has really, really been fun. And it was great to meet you, to match a face with the Instagram handle. And hope you can come back on the show sometime soon. I would love to, Mike. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm glad that you're doing a podcast like this about Gordon Lightfoot because when I, when I came across your show, I was like, this is awesome. And I'm glad that he's getting some very much well-deserved attention that his music deserves.
Well, bless you and thank you for saying so. And thanks for listening, everyone. If you'd like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com, and our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming out during the first week in March, and Kevin and Aaron Hester will be coming back on the show to talk about Mother of a Miner's Child from the old Dan Records album in 1972. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming out during the first week in March, and Kevin and Aaron Hester will be coming back on the show to talk about Mother of a Miner's Child from the old Dan Records album in 1972. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.